Father, may your word be planted deep in us. Through the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. I've come to the conclusion that that games and playing games is, is a part of, of the fabric of what it means to be human. Wherever you go, in some form or another, people gravitate toward playing games. Now, you know, different cultures have different games, and in cultures where maybe board games or card games aren't as available, uh, people create games. Uh, someone loaned me uh, a few games from that African children use, some toys that they play with. And this little guy here is a, is a toy that they found in the markets. And you may want to, they may race these through the street as they play with this little toy. There's a game with that. And, of course, most of you recognize the slingshot. And I, I didn't bring any rocks today for your sake and through the windows. And probably my own. I don't want those coming back at me. Uh, but, you know... A game you can play. Who can hit the target? You know, you think of something to do, and even an instrument that you can play. They made a little uh, bottle caps of, of things that you can do to play to to come together and and play games. And and people play games all over the world. And some games are more complex. Some games are simpler. Some are short. Some take a long time to play. But but people have a tendency to gravitate toward playing games. And I don't think that's true anywhere more than in this country. You go to a store, and the shelves are lined with games. Old games, new games, games for children, games for adults, games that take seconds to set up, games that take a long time to set up. One of my favorite long-time games to set up is Mousetrap. You know Mousetrap? When my childhood friends had mousetrap, I did not. It was very sad. But as soon as I discovered eBay, I got a mousetrap game. I'm, I'm convinced that eBay is so popular because of this kind of thing. People who didn't get something when they were a child want to get it now when they're an adult. It's one way of doing that. But, you know, to play this game, it's okay. The fun is in setting it up. You know, the fun is in, the, in, in putting all the pieces together and then pulling the, the lever and watching the boot kick the stop sign that runs the ball into the bucket down the stairs that knocks over the, the guy who's on the high wire and eventually brings the, the basket down over the mouse. And, you know, to play this game, going around the board, okay, but I just like setting it up and letting it go and then setting it up and letting it go again. But, you know, that's one of those longer games that it takes a little time to set that one up. But we all, and we all tend to like different kinds of games. Some people liked timed, tense games. You know, the kind of games that has a little timer that makes noise. This is one of those games that does that where you hear that noise. And you're trying to concentrate as that noise is going off. And longer and longer and the faster it gets to the end, the quicker it goes until you can feel your heart just racing. And, and with it. And, or, you know, you have the hourglass games where the salt goes through the bottom. And, you know, as you're playing this game, as you see it just get to the end, you begin to panic because you're not quite done yet. And, you know, people like those kinds of tense, timed games. And, and other people like games that are a little more low-key. 
Games, more games like of, of strategy, chess or Scrabble or Boggle or Stratego. Games that test our patience and, and our mental capacities, which I think is one reason why people like those games and probably one reason why people don't like those games. Uh, they don't want to test their mental capacities. They don't, that's not what they want to play games about. And, and there are social games, you know, games like Pictionary, Charades, and, and uh, Scattergories, uh, Apples to Apples. They're, they're competitive games, but they're really not about the competition. Uh, the real point of the game is not so much winning and losing as it is creating a, an environment for social interaction. That's what the game's about. And those kinds of games, you can play, you talk while you play those games, and you converse something you can't do in some of the more intense strategy games. And it's a a social thing. But here's what I've discovered about games. Games reveal a lot. Games reveal a lot about us. The types of games that we prefer to play and the way we play them, I think has a tendency to expose our personalities. Some of us are very competitive about games. We take them seriously. We, play to, we don't just play to win. You play to crush your opponent. And you're sitting there going, oh, that's why you play the game. You know, I don't want to just win. I want to win big. I want to humiliate them. And, and you can't figure out why anyone would take the time to set up a board and not want to be competitive about it. Not want to play hard and win big. Others, however, play not so much to win as to socialize. The game is really secondary to conversation, social interaction. If I win, fine. If I don't, whatever. This is the kind of personality type that when someone makes a move, they let them change it, even though they've taken their hand off the piece. You know? Uh, They're the kind of person that says, well, that that didn't work out so well for you. Try it again. Do, Do it. Go again. Or if you're playing a guessing game, they're saying, they'll give you hints. Or to get the end, you'll say, ah, oh, that's close enough. And all the while, not realizing it, or maybe they do realize it, uh, the competitive player is sitting over to the side, boiling and steaming and doing everything they can to keep from yelling out, that's not the rules. That's not how you play. Right? I mean, we've all been there. We've both sides of that, probably. But I mean, if you think about games kind of games you like to play and the way that you play them. I think they reveal a lot about us. They open a window into our personality. It's actually quite revealing if you stop and think about it. But I also think that, that games, even though at times we, we see them as maybe trivial and secondary to what's really important in life, I, I think that games at times... I guess much like movies or novels or music or art, I think that there are times when games can help us get a picture, an image, an understanding in our minds, not only about us, but about who we are as God's children and about what God wants to say to us through his word. And so, and I realized that I mean, that's really what these sermons are about. As we you know, highlight a particular game, it, it's really about maybe the, the parabolic nature of that particular game to, to give us an insight in the back door 
of something that God may want to say to us. I realize that maybe that means a sermon is going to be a little bit different than what we might think of typically as a sermon. But that's okay. I mean, it seems to me that some of the most profound and prolific sermons that Jesus gives surprise his audience, not just because about what he says, but the path he takes to say it. And so the underlying purpose of of these sermons and these games is to, to help us understand something that God may want to say to us. And I want to begin today with the game of life. How many of you have played the game of life? A fair number. I did not realize this until I began to look this stuff up, but the game of life was actually originally invented in 1861. Abraham Lincoln was the president when that game was originally invented. Now, it looked totally different. It was a, looked more like a checkerboard, and you had good squares and bad squares. It was about 100 years later in the early 1960s when, this mo- when the more modern version that we have, have played uh, wa- was born. And you knew that it was a, you knew if you, at that time, if you were looking at a game to buy, you knew that this game was going to be a wholesome family game because it was endorsed by Art Linkletter. Had his picture right on the box. Now, some of you are going, who? Think Mr. Rogers with a suit instead of a sweater. And that pretty much gives you Art Linkletter. All right? He is the epitome of wholesomeness. And if he, if he endorses it, it must be a good game. So, you know, and then it began to evolve, and through the years they put out different editions, they changed some things. Uh, one thing they changed with the dollar denominations to reflect inflation, and, and in the 1980s, uh, the little, you know, the little pieces you used to move around the board, little cars, and they went from originally being convertibles to in the 1980s being minivans, which is kind of an interesting uh, cultural thing to say. And, and in the 1990 editions, uh, you begin to reward, get rewarded for good behavior. You can be rewarded for picking up trash or for recycling or for helping a homeless person. And, 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 you know, the modern versions, you can tell that this is a terrific game. I mean, look at this family. Are they not having fun playing this game? They are thrilled about playing the game of life. You look at that and you go, that's what we want our family to be. Let's go get that game. You know, the game of life. But we're not here today really to talk about the game of life. We're here to talk about real life. And the Bible tells us that no one is more interested in life, your life, my life, everybody's life. No one's more interested in life than God is. From the beginning to the end, the scriptures recount what I would call God's obsession with life. The book of Genesis tells us that God, that, that God brings his creatures into being and he gives us life. He breathes life into us and we only live because God brings us life. And then you move to the end of the scriptures to Revelation and God is still talking about life about the tree of life, and about the water of life, and about eternal life. And life is the theme of the incarnation. of God in human flesh. The Apostle John begins his gospel by stating that of, of Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of all people. 
As Jesus interacts with the people of Palestine, he tells them that that all who believe in him will have eternal life. Probably the most famous and often quoted verse of Scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus goes on to declare, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And again, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And the Apostle Paul affirms the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But what I want us to hear today, what I want us to to concentrate, think about today, is that God's concern for life is not limited to the hereafter. We tend to think that God's primary concern for us, maybe his only concern for us, is eternal life. It's not. Now, don't misunderstand me. Eternal life is extremely important. And thinking eternally makes all the difference in how we live temporally. But as interested as God is in how we live in eternity, God is just as concerned about how we live now. In the 10th chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus, speaking of himself as the good shepherd who cares for his sheep in ways that no one else ever could or would, says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. He says, my purpose is to give life in all its fullness, to bless my people with abundant life, life to the fullest. Jesus says, I've come into this world, I've taken on flesh. The purpose of my existence is to give you life and to bless you with life to its fullest and greatest extent. And that doesn't begin when you die. It's about now. It's about now. In his introduction to the book of Proverbs, the message translator Eugene Peterson says, many people think that what's written in the Bible has mostly to do with getting people in heaven, getting right with God, saving their eternal souls. And it does have to do with that, of course. But not mostly. He says, it's equally concerned with living here on earth, living well, living in what he calls robust sanity. In our scriptures, heaven is not the primary concern, to which earth is sort of a a tag-along afterthought. On earth, as it is in heaven, is Jesus' prayer. God is concerned that we live now, that we live in abundant joy and peace and love now. And I'm not always sure that that message, the truth, gets through to us. Evangelical Christians have a tendency to see the first step of faith as the end, when the scriptures tell us it's the beginning. Life to the fullest isn't about just getting to the finish line. Life to the fullest is about living each and every day in the full blessing of God's Spirit. God's intention is not just eternal life, as important as that is. He wants us to experience fullness of life now. Faith in Jesus is not some 
eternal fire insurance. Living for Christ isn't just squeaking by. Being filled abundantly with joy and peace and love now. Let's be honest. This belief about God's plan for us is is continually tested as we move through the ups and the downs of, of life. We live in an imperfect world. Things happen that we wish wouldn't have. Things happen that we don't expect, but the I guess to boil it down to the nutshell, that's life. It doesn't take a genius to, to see that life is all about ups and downs, that there are events and circumstances that are thrust upon us over which we have absolutely no control. Life takes twists and turns, and we have to decide how we're going to respond to them. We all have experiences that we don't understand, that we wrestle with, that we question. I suspect that we can probably relate to this cartoon. Guys in heaven, clouds of the angel, this was your life. But I see it with the director's commentary. There were a lot of parts I didn't understand. I I think we understand that. A lot of things that happen that we don't understand. That's life. In some ways, I guess... Yes, real life is not unlike this board game. To play this game, you, you spin the wheel and you move up the number of spaces and, and you, you start, interestingly enough, at start and you work your way around the board and there's twists and turns and you up and down mountains and you make choices at places where you want to go and eventually you, you get to the end. And all along the pathway are life events that you land on. Things like tree falls on house, pay $15,000 if not insured. Or TV game show winner, collect $95,000. Or Mushu flu attack, pay $25,000. That's some expensive medical care. Or flat tire, lose next turn. I guess in one way, it's, it's an artificial attempt to mimic real life. And, and you could... Watch it, look at this game, and, and you think, well, it's, it's not done very well. I mean, it's not real because everything's sort of chance as you spin the wheel. And yet, helping us understand the ups and the downs and the unexpected of life, maybe it's not that far off. The promise of abundant life is not a promise to be free from trouble or pain, whether the trouble and pain or because of our choices, or because of something we had no control over. It's the reality of living in a fallen world. We're going to face them. And God says that we can have abundant life in spite of them. The ups and the downs of life are not what make life abundant or not. It is Christ with us in the ups and the downs of life that make life abundant. The Apostle Paul writes the letter of Philippians, shackled and chained under arrest, the jail cell. Guards are with him day and night, and as the letter draws to a close, he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret 
of being content in every situation. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The message translates those verses, I've found the recipe for being happy. Whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty, whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Is Paul in denial about his circumstances? No. He's very forthright about his circumstances. In fact, there are times where he laments his circumstances. But he realizes that abundant life in Christ is greater than his circumstances. And in the difficult times of life, we may struggle to believe that abundant life really is God's desire for us because we're so focused on the ups and the downs instead of on Christ. But it's in the ups and the downs of life that we have to believe that this fulfilled life, this abundant life is true and real. But it's because of the ups and the downs that we're also reminded that we will only experience that kind of abundant life when we surrender our lives to the one who gives us life. And it's important to understand that abundant life is really less about making Christ our highest priority, and it's more about making Christ central to all that we are. God doesn't just want a piece of us. He doesn't just want a piece of our life, not even a big piece of our life. He wants all of us. He wants all of our life. One person imagines Jesus explaining it this way. I don't want to be first among a list of values. I want to be the center of everything. I I don't want to be like, like a pyramid of priorities. I want to be the center of a mobile. Where everything in your life, your friends, your family, your occupation, your thoughts, your activities, all of it is connected to me. That's surrendering to Christ. The game of life, as I said, the playing pieces are are these little cars. And, uh, well, now they're minivans. Uh, You have these little cars and and they have little holes on the top. and, And you're playing, you have little pegs that you use. Blue pegs and pink pegs. You can understand what that's about. So you you put your peg in the driver's seat. I'll put a blue one in. And you start off. And as you go along, everyone stops to get married. And along the way, if you land on the right spaces, you accumulate children. And imagine as you're going along, driving in your car, and you encounter Jesus. And, and, And you decide to invite him into your car. And initially, he's maybe sitting more to the back. But as you build your relationship with him, as, as your relationship grows, he moves up uh, even ahead of your children and your spouse, as he says he needs to do in a right relationship with him. And, and you're going along, and now he's in the front passenger seat with you. And, and you're tootling along the road of life, and, and life is good. And then Jesus begins to tell you, I I know life is good, but I want life to be abundant. I don't want you to settle for good. I want it to be more than that. 
And then you begin to realize that, that what he's talking about is, is something very drastic. That he says, if you want abundant life, you've got to get out of the driver's seat and let me get in. And you want abundant life and, and you're leaning toward abundant life. But it's it's scary. But eventually he climbs in to the driver's seat and, and he's going to lead you and guide you and he's going to steer the car probably in places that you'd really rather not go. And in those times, it's so tempting to reach back and grab the wheel. You want to switch places. Particularly in those times when it feels like he's driving around a mountain pass awfully fast and awfully close to the edge of the road. And you want to reach over and he says, trust me. Those times when he he turns down a a highway that has an awful lot of potholes in it. And you're bumping and jarring and and you feel like you're being shaken to death. And you can't take it anymore and and you want to reach over and he says, trust me. Or in those times when it feels like he's going way too slow. You want him to speed up or... Or it feels like he's going way too fast and your heart's going to bounce out of your chest and, and you want to reach over and trust me. Trust me. And slowly it begins to dawn on you the most amazing thing that the more you trust him, the more you begin to experience abundant life. The fullness of life, the joy and, and the peace and love become tangible elements so deep within you that you wonder why anyone would want anything else. And slowly it dawns on you that no one, including yourself, no one wants the good life for you more than Christ does. And it slowly begins to sink in that God, who initiates life and promises life, wants to fill you with the fullness of life. He's just asking you to surrender. It's at that point that the commands of God take on a whole new dimension. What you thought was binding and restricting and suffocating now you realize, isn't that at all? So, so the command to forgive isn't intended to, to make us weak. It's intended to set us free from the bondage of hate. And the command to bend our desires to, to the desires of someone else, to, to think more about service than about being served, isn't intended to limit our joy. It's intended to, to set us free in order to experience joy. The command to, to generosity It's not intended to to induce stress because we're not getting everything we want. It's intended to free us from the chains of greed. And those commands that seem binding and suffocating now seem awfully freeing. Because we have surrendered to Christ begun to experience the fullness of his presence of joy and peace and love. And then we begin to understand 
We begin to live the words of Proverbs 3 as translated in the message. You'll travel safely. You'll neither tire nor trip. You'll take afternoon naps without a worry. You'll enjoy a good night's sleep. No need to panic over alarms or surprises or predictions that doomsday is just around the corner because God is right there with you. And that changes everything. The 1995 movie Braveheart tells a story about how a common man named William Wallace lead Scotland to freedom from English rule. It's a brutal tale of of war and death, courage and strength. There's a scene near the end of the movie when, when Wallace, who is played by Mel Gibson, has been betrayed to the English and he sits in prison awaiting execution. He's been given the opportunity to, uh, to confess his allegiance to the king and but he stands firm in his conviction for his people. One last effort to save him, the princess of Wales comes to visit him. She desperately wants to see him set free. Her heart is breaking for what she knows lies ahead of him. She asks if there's any way he could recant. If he just just swear allegiance to the king... All this would go away. She walks into the cell and she says, I come to beg you to confess all and and swear allegiance to the king that he may show you mercy. Wallace struggles to help her understand. and He says, but if I swear to him, all that I am is dead already. The princess weeping and sobbing you will die. It will be awful. With deep conviction, Wallace says, every man dies. Not every man truly lives. Far more than I suspect William Wallace understands. God wants us to truly live. God is calling us to come and and to live abundantly. Calling us to, to surrender our lives so that we can receive fullness of life. Even now. Even now. Father, Father, we want abundant life. We're afraid, we're unsure, we're we're hesitant. Open our eyes to your loving desires for us. Inspire us to to surrender to Christ that we might really live.
even now. Amen.